0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned In Brief. I'm your host, Preet Barara. This week, we're going to talk about Iran. Many of us have seen videos on social media of the protests that erupted over three weeks ago when a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini died in police custody. She had been arrested for allegedly violating laws requiring women to wear headscarves. The protests are reportedly the largest to sweep the country since 2009. And many are speculating about what they mean for the future of the autocratic regime. My guest this week is Kareem Sajidpour, one of the foremost foreign policy experts on Iran. He's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Kareem, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Preet. So let's start at the beginning for people who may not be following this very important story. Who was Masa Amini? What did she do? And what happened to her?
1: So Masa Amini was a 22 Iranian young woman originally from the province of Kurdistan, and she was visiting Tehran with her brother. And the morality police, as soon as they got off the train, spotted her. And it's not totally clear whether the morality police stopped her because she was showing too much hair. Uh, the, the hijab is, is compulsory in Iran, or some reports suggest that they thought her pants were too tight but they essentially detained her and they beat her badly when she was under detention. And she must have experienced internal bleeding of some kind and shortly thereafter she died. When you say morality police,
0: is that a term of art? Is that an actual subdivision of law enforcement or is that a casual term that's used?
1: It's actually a term that's used in Iran, they call them the basij. And they're essentially men who are uh, tasked with uh, enforcing public morality. And, uh, they number in the tens of thousands, um, especially in a city like Tehran. And it's very arbitrary how they can stop you. You know, one woman who is not, is not really covering her hair, they may, they may, um, pass her by. And then in this case, uh, in the case of Masa Amini, Masa's mother said that she was actually dressed very modestly. There was no reason for them to have stopped her. But these laws can be very arbitrary depending on who is the, the the morality policeman and uh, the consequences, as we see, can sometimes be very deadly. And the reports are that she was, in fact, wearing a headscarf.
0: Do you know what the details of that are?
1: Yes, that's, as I said, what, what her mom said, that she was wearing a headscarf. She wasn't even showing too much hair. There are some reports that suggest that they detained her because she was wearing trousers that were a little bit too tight. But, uh, you know, bigger picture, the the hijab, the mandatory hijab, uh, headscarf for women, is really, I would argue, one of the three ideological pillars left of the Iranian regime, um, the other two being uh, death to America and death to Israel. And so for, you know, many people ask, well, what's the big deal? Like, why don't they just um allow women to wear headscarves? But if you're an authoritarian regime and you've placed so much of your identity in this, um, in this symbol of the mandatory headscarf and that begins to crumble, you start to worry about your stability. My friend Massey Ali Najad, the women's rights activist in Brooklyn has been comparing uh, the mandatory hijab in Iran to the Berlin Wall, and her argument is, you know, once the Berlin Wall came fell down, um, those authoritarian regimes soon after collapsed, and that is, I think, what is really um, a- existential at the moment for the Islamic Republic. This idea that the that the mandatory uh, hijab is is starting to crumble. As a
0: matter of background, how free is the flow of information in Iran? How are people in the country finding out about Massa's death in custody? and the protests and where to protest. I thought that information wasn't flowing very freely. How are people protesting in an
1: organized way? During times of tumult the regime is very good at um at repression and information repression so throttling the internet preventing people from communicating with one another and the outside world so this was a situation in which you know under normal circumstances there isn't a free flow of information in Iran uh, a lot of sites are, are are banned you know Twitter Facebook things like that but people use VPNs and and they find ways to get around it and so this happened quite quickly um you know there's been for many years there's been political social economic discontent in Iran and the killing of Massa Amini was basically the match that uh, triggered this this uh, uprising and um it's it, it took the regime a few days to um try to control things again and there was a report yesterday and the Washington Post, that essentially between 3 p.m. and 1 a.m., the internet barely works in Iran. And most sites like WhatsApp and and Telegram, this communication tools that people use have trickled to a crawl. So it is now very difficult for people to get out videos and photos of what's going on.
0: Is there an investigation, or at least one that's been announced, into her death or not?
1: I believe the president of Iran did announce an investigation, but, you know, the, Preet, there's now a 43-year history of these types of indignities and crimes happening, and there's never been accountability. So I think at this point, people feel like, you know, we're no longer going to, to fall for this. And, you know, bigger picture, I think for many years, people hoped that the Islamic Republic of Iran could transform, could reform itself into a more Uh, moderate system. And I, I think that very, very few people still believe in the possibility that this regime is capable of reforming its politics or reforming its ideology.
0: Can you give us a sense of the scope and size and remarkable nature of these protests? How many people in what parts of the country and how unusual it is?
1: So reports suggest that these protests have happened in over 80 cities throughout the country. It's difficult to get a sense of, you know, how many people were talking, but certainly in the hundreds of thousands. And this isn't new in Iran since from 2009 to the present, we've had three uh, major national protests. In 2009, the trigger was political when uh, then-President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, his re-election as president, was rigged. That triggered millions of people to take to the streets and the so-called green movement which was eventually crushed in 2019 the the trigger for a national uprising was economic uh, removal of subsidies um, uh, increase in gas prices caused people to go to the streets because of economic discontents and as we've talked about this time around in 2022 the trigger uh, has been social um, the the killing of massa Amini and I think the bigger picture is that what's somewhat unique about the Islamic Republic of Iran, is it's not only politically authoritarian, but it's also economically and socially authoritarian. They don't only say, you know, you, you're not free to express yourself politically, but they police your life um socially, you know, whom you can can you go out in the you can't go out in the streets with your your easily with your boyfriend or girlfriend, what you listen to, what you watch, what you drink. Um and then, you know, economically it's just uh one of the worst managed countries in the world. And so for that reason, there's this collection of grievances that people have, which span politics, economics, and and, and social. Because these protests were provoked by a social issue, are the participants in the
0: protests, generally speaking, more diverse, people from lower incomes and higher incomes,
1: and does that give it more force? So what we've, the, the most vivid uh, videos and images of these protests so far have been young women, uh, and one of the powerful slogans to come out of these protests has been this chant of "Zan Zendegi Azadi," which means "Woman, Life, Freedom." I would argue, though, that um, you know, if these protests uh, are going to lead to any type of change in Iran. The burden can't only be on these young girls. And obviously, it's not just young girls. You have um uh, young men uh, as well, and as I said, in a, in a diverse array of cities and and social classes. But I, I think if these protests are going to be more impactful, you may need to start to see um strikes uh from you know the, the merchant classes, the bazaar, from oil workers. These were the types of um highly impactful tactics which um, helped bring down the Ancien regime in 1979, the Shah of Iran. You mentioned one of the slogans at the protests: woman, life, freedom. One of the other things
0: that I've heard reported that's being chanted is death to the dictator. And I guess my question is, given how repressive the regime is, how intolerant they must be about with respect to protest, when you have people chanting death to the dictator, why have they not yet, and I'm glad they haven't, but why have they not yet crush these protests with significant violence
1: you know the islamic republic as i said the one thing they've done very effectively over the last 43 years is repression and they have it down to a science and their capacity for repression they still haven't shown what they're what they're capable of i think these protests are somewhat more delicate and that you know in the past if it's working class men who have taken to the streets because of economic discontent, you know, you can shoot them or, or hit them on the head with, with batons. When it's, in some cases, you know, we're looking at um, teenage girls who, you know, removing their headscarves, and that's a more delicate protest to, to crush. Um, you know, how do you do that? And these images have been very embarrassing for the regime. So they're smart enough to
0: realize that they would make it worse if they dealt in, in bloody violence with these protesters.
1: You know, when you study the history of popular uprisings, um, it is so difficult to predict what is going to happen because you have to try to get inside the head of an individual dictator oftentimes, you know, understanding the psychology of of a dictator, and then understanding the collective psychology of exasperated societies. And in this case it's not clear, you know, uh, oftentimes if you react with overwhelming force uh, to nonviolent protest, you can, you you know, pour gasoline on, on the flames instead of water. And so I think certainly as you alluded to, the Islamic Republic is capable of much greater repression, but they're trying to manage this in a way in which they're not pouring gasoline on the fire. So what's the hope that you have or that we should have that these protests
0: will lead to reform and change in Iran?
1: Well, I don't think they will lead to reform. My view is that this is a regime which um, realizes, you know, some of the great political philosophers in history, like Machiavelli and Tocqueville, have noted that the most dangerous moment for any bad government is when it tries to reform itself. And Iran's Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, his the lessons he's learned over the last three decades is that you should never abandon your principles. He looks at the collapse of the Soviet Union, and he said that happened because Gorbachev tried to reform that system. He looks at the Arab uprisings of 2011, and he says, well, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt and Ben Ali in Tunisia, they promised reform, um, and eventually they, they had to leave, whereas Bashar Assad, Iran's client in Damascus and Syria, he didn't see it an inch, and he's still Ruling, And so this is a system which I believe is not going to reform because they believe if they start trying to reform, that's not going to prolong their shelf life. It's actually going to hasten their collapse. So in some ways, this is really an all or nothing dynamic. Either the regime crushes people and prevails, although it's not going to prevail indefinitely, or uh, we'll see some kind of change. But I don't believe that there's any in-between reform scenario
0: in the aftermath of this and in the wake of these protests and the binary choice that you think will come about, what should the U.S. and the West be doing to support the protesters? Or should they just stay out of it and let this unfold on its own in Iran?
1: This is one of these uncommon moments in which U.S. interests and U.S. values align and that there is a nonviolent protest against a regime whose official slogan is death to America. So whether you're you know, Bernie Sanders or, or Ted Cruz, this is a movement you want to support. At the same time, the U.S. has in the past been reluctant to be uh, overly supportive for fear of uh, delegitimizing the independence of these protesters. But I think what, what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has alluded to is that whether the United States does zero or we do 10 out of 10, the Iranian regime is still going to label these protesters as American lackeys or, you know, Israeli lackeys. And so my view is that one of the things that the U.S. can do, perhaps more effectively than anything else, is to try to limit the regime's ability to place a a dark blanket over society and prevent Iran, you know, throttling the Internet and preventing Iranians from communicating with the outside world and communicating with one another. And so there are efforts already underway with, with Elon Musk's Starlink to, to try to get internet service to Iran. And I would argue, you know, more broadly as, as a government, the Biden administration needs to think more broadly about what is their strategy for Iran. Up until now, the strategy has been only about trying to revive the 2015 nuclear deal, which Donald Trump exited. But I think there is a very instructive template we can follow. What Ronald Reagan did vis-a-vis the Soviet Union in the nineteen eighties. So he he talked to them, he negotiated arms control deals with them, but at the same time he denounced them as an evil empire. He implored Gorbachev to tear down the wall. And he we we offered all kinds of support to to democracy activists within Russia. And I, I think that, you know, we can we are capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time
0: final question to you if if you had the opportunity to address the protesters and say things without repercussion what would you tell them
1: well just that we're really awed by their bravery you know uh, for a long time i and so many other iranians have have thought that this is a society in iran which deserves so much better than what it has essentially you have a regime in Iran, which in many ways resembles North Korea, and you have a society that's aspiring to be like South Korea, prosperous and free. And you know, eventually, I, I think that that gap will be reconciled. You can never uh, predict what the outcome of these protests will be. But my view is that eventually the Islamic Republic of Iran will face the same fate as the Soviet Union. What we can't predict is the timing of that.
0: Karim Sajidpour, thank you so much for being with us and explaining what's going on.
1: Thank you, Pri. Great to be with you.
0: For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashur. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azalai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.